Chapter One, Part Four, Five and Six of God the Invisible King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God the Invisible King by H. G. Wells. Chapter One, Part Four. So it is that comprehensive setting of the universe presents itself to the modern mind. It is altogether outside of good and evil, and love and hate. It is outside God, who is love and goodness. And coming out of this veiled being, proceeding out of it in a manner altogether inconceivable, is another lesser being, an impulse thrusting through matter and clothing itself in continually changing material forms the maker of our world life the will to be it comes out of that inscrutable being as a wave comes rolling to us from beyond the horizon it is as it were a great wave rushing through matter and possessed by a spirit it is a breeding fighting thing it pants through the jungle track as the tiger and lifts itself toward heaven as the tree it is the rabbit bolting for its life and the dove calling to her mate it crawls it flies it dives it lusts and devours it pursues and eats itself in order to live still more eagerly and hastily it is every living thing of it are our passions and desires and fears and it is aware of itself not as a whole but dispersedly as individual self-consciousness starting out dispersedly from every one of the sentient creatures it has called into being they look out for their little moments red-eyed and fierce full of greed full of the passions of acquisition and assimilation and reproduction submitting only to brief fellowships of defense or aggression they are beings of strain and conflict and competition they are living substance still mingled painfully with the dust the forms in which this being clothes itself bears thorns and fangs and claws are soaked with poison and bright with threats or allurements they prey slyly or openly on one another hold their own for a little while, breed savagely and resentfully, and pass. This second being men have called the life force, the will to live, the struggle for existence. They have figured it, too, as Mother Nature. We may speculate whether it is not what the wiser among the Gnostics meant by demiurge, but since the Christians destroyed all the Gnostic books that must remain a mere curious guess, we may speculate whether this heat and haste and wrath of life about us is the dark god of the Manichees, the evil spirit of the sun-worshippers. But in contemporary thought there is no conviction apparent that this demiurge is either good or evil. It is conceived of as both good and evil. If it gives all the pain and conflict of life, it also gives the joy of the sunshine, the delight and hope of youth, the pleasures. 
if it has elaborated a hundred thousand sorts of parasite. It has also molded the beautiful limbs of man and woman. It has shaped the slug and the flower, and in it, as part of it, taking its rewards, responding to its goads, struggling against the final abandonment to death, do we all live, as the beasts live, glad, angry, sorrow, revengeful, hopeful, weary, disgusted, forgetful, lustful, happy, excited, bored in pain, mood after mood, but always fearing death, with no certainty and no coherence within us, until we find God. And God comes to us neither out of the stars nor out of the pride of life, but as a still, small voice within. Part 5. God is within. God comes, we know not whence, into the conflict of life. He works in men and through men. He is a spirit, a single spirit, and a single person. He has begun, and he will never end. He is the immortal part and leader of mankind. He has motives, he has characteristics, he has an aim. He is by our poor scales of measurement, boundless love, boundless courage, boundless generosity. He is thought and a steadfast will. He is our friend and brother and the light of the world. That briefly is the belief of the modern mind with regard to God. There is no very novel idea about this God unless it be the idea that he had a beginning. This is the God that men have sought and found in all ages as God or the Messiah or the Savior. The finding of him is salvation from the purposelessness of life. The new religion has but disentangled the idea of him from the absolutes and infinities and mysteries of the Christian theologians, from mythological virgin births and the cosmogonies and intellectual pretentiousness of a vanished age. Modern religion appeals to no revelation, no authoritative teaching, no mystery. The statement it makes is it declares a mere statement of what we all may perceive and experience we all live in the storm of life we all find our understandings limited by the veiled being if we seek salvation and search within for god presently we find him all this is in the nature of things if everyone who perceives and states it were to be instantly killed and blotted out Presently, other people would find their way to the same conclusions, and so on again and again. To this all true religion, casting aside its hulls of misconception, must ultimately come. To it, indeed, much religion is already coming. Christian thought struggles toward it, with the millstones of Syrian theology and an outrageous mythology of incarnation and resurrection about its neck. When at last our present bench of bishops join the early fathers of the church in heaven, there will be, I fear, a note of reproach in their greeting 
of the ingenious person who saddled them with omnipotence. Still more disastrous for them has been the virgin birth, with the terrible fascination of its detail for unpoetic minds. How rich is the literature of authoritative Christianity with decisions upon the continuing virginity of Mary and the virginity of Joseph, ideas that first arose in Arabia as a Muslim gloss upon Christianity, and how little have these peepings and pryings to do with the needs of the heart and the finding of God. Within the last few years, there have been a score or so of such volumes as that recently compiled by Dr. Folks Jackson entitled The Faith and the War, a volume in which the curious reader may contemplate deans and canons, divines and church dignitaries, men intelligent and inquiring and religiously disposed, all lying like overladen camels, panting under the load of obsolete theological responsibility, groaning great articles outside the needle's eye that leads to God. Part 6. The Coming of God Modern religion bases its knowledge of God and its account of God entirely upon experience. It has encountered God. It does not argue about God. It relates. It relates without any of those wrappings of awe and reverence that fold so necessarily about imposture. It relates as one tells of a friend and his assistance, of a happy adventure, of a beautiful thing found and picked up by the wayside. So far as its psychological phases go, the new account of personal salvation tallies very closely with the account of conversion as it is given by other religions. It has little to tell that is not already familiar to the reader of William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. It describes an initial state of distress with the aimlessness and cruelties of life and particularly with the futility of the individual life, a state of helpless self-disgust, of inability to form any satisfactory plan of living. This is the common prelude known to many sorts of Christians as conviction of sin. It is, at any rate, a conviction of hopeless confusion. And then in some way, the idea of God comes into the distressed mind, at first simply as an idea without substance or belief. It is read about or it is remembered. It is expounded by some teacher or some happy convert. In the case of all those of the new faith with whose personal experience I have any intimacy, the idea of God has remained for some time simply an idea floating about in a mind still dissatisfied. God is not believed in, but it is realized that if there were such a being, he would supply the needed consolation and direction. His continuing purpose would knit together the scattered effort of life. His immortality would take the sting from death. Under this realization, the idea is pursued and elaborated. For a time, there is a curious resistance to the suggestion that God is truly a person. He is spoken of preferably by such phrases as the purpose in things, as the racial consciousness, 
as the collective mind. I believe that this resistance in so many contemporary minds to the idea of God as a person is due very largely to the enormous prejudice against divine personality created by the absurdities of the Christian teaching and the habitual monopoly of the Christian idea. The picture of Christ as the Good Shepherd thrusts itself before minds unaccustomed to the idea that they are lambs. The cross in the twilight bars the way. It is a novelty and an enormous relief to such people to realize that one may think of God without being committed to think of either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Ghost, or of all of them at once, that freedom had not seemed possible to them. They had been hypnotized and obsessed by the idea that the Christian God is the only thinkable God. They had heard so much about that God, and so little of any other. With that release, their minds become, as it were, nascent and ready for the coming of God. Then suddenly, in a little while, in his own time, God comes. This cardinal experience is an undoubting, immediate sense of God. It is the attainment of an absolute certainty that one is not alone in oneself. It is as if one was touched at every point by a being akin to oneself, sympathetic beyond measure, wiser, steadfast, and pure in aim. It is completer and more intimate, but it is like standing side by side with and touching someone that we love very dearly and trust completely. It is as if this being bridged a thousand misunderstandings and brought us into fellowship with a great multitude of other people. Closer he is than breathing, and nearer than hands and feet. The moment may come while we're alone in the darkness under the stars, or while we walk by ourselves, or in a crowd, or while we sit and muse. It may come upon the sinking ship, or in the tumult of battle. There is no saying when it may not come to us, but after it has come, our lives are changed. God is with us, and there is no more doubt of God. Thereafter, one goes about the world like one who was lonely and has found a lover, like one who was perplexed and has found a solution. One is assured that there is a power that fights with us against the confusion and evil within us and without. There comes into the heart an essential and enduring happiness and courage. There is but one God. There is but one true religious experience, but under a multitude of names, under veils and darknesses, God has in this manner come into countless lives. There is scarcely a faith, however mean and preposterous, that has not been a way to holiness. God, who is himself finite, who himself struggles in his great effort from strength to strength, has no spite against error. Far beyond halfway, he hastens to meet the purblind. But God is against the darkness in their eyes. The faith which is returning to men girds at veils and shadows, 
and would see God plainly. It has little respect for mysteries. It rends the veil of the temple in rags and tatters. It has no superstitious fear of this huge friendliness, of this great brother and leader of our little beings. To find God is but the beginning of wisdom, because then for all our days we have to learn his purpose with us and to live our lives with him. End of chapter 1, parts 4, 5, and 6.